0: This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth, and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerlock. ...is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Mika Makineth.
1: Hi, Mika. Welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Uh, Now, in this podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific uh, studies. So, would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? What are you?
0: I am a freelance scientist, which I swear is a real job. It's a combination of doing a bit of research, a bit of teaching, a whole lot of science communication, all kind of coming together into one.
1: Excellent. Uh, now, you're a, a geophysicist. What, what on earth is that?
0: <laughs> a geophysicist is a little bit like a mix of MacGyver and James Bond villain. It's the um, art and science of trying to understand what is going on with rocks by looking at their properties. Uh, and it's an awful lot like being that annoying sibling who's teasing, I'm not touching you, while getting way too close. <laughs> what it actually looks like is that uh, we use the signals that come through geologic properties to try and understand what's happening. So you do something like, you put out a whole bunch of three-dimensional microphones called geophones and you put them in the ground and then you do something to cause a disruption, a vibration. So you uh, hit a really big hammer, uh, you shoot a rifle into the ground, a shotgun into the ground, You use a big thumper truck. You even set off explosives, and that creates a vibration source, and those vibrations move through the rocks, get picked up by the geophones, and you use that to understand what are the properties of the rocks, which then can tell you things like how much sediment is there above the bedrock, or if you do this on a really large scale, you use seismometers and earthquakes and can figure out that there's a liquid and a solid inner core of the earth, even though we can't physically go down there.
1: Oh, cool. So it's like using underground sonar or radar.
0: Yeah, and we can do it with all sorts of different properties. So that one's using the elastic properties of rocks, how much they wiggle, but you can also do it with the electrical properties or the magnetic properties or even the density of it by very, very, very carefully measuring how the gravitational field of the Earth changes. You think that the Earth is this, like, round sphere, or maybe if you're a bit more detailed, you're like, it's an oblate spheroid that's been squished. But if you look at the gravity field of the Earth, it's actually this lumpy potato where you have areas that are really dense and heavy and areas that are actually kind of fluffy and light. What's really unintuitive about that is mountain ranges are actually really fluffy and light. So they have a weaker gravitational field compared to other places. So if you have like a pendulum, a really sensitive pendulum, and you're standing next to Mount Everest, the gravitational field pulling it straight down will actually be deflected a little bit away from the mountains.
1: Oh, Oh, I never thought of that.
0: (laughs) So that's what geophysics is, its doing all of these kind of weird indirect things to try and understand what is going on when you can't actually directly drill a hole or collect a rock sample directly. Mm -hmm. You can still indirectly figure out quite a bit about it just by its physical properties.
1: And you're saying that these studies can be conducted like hundreds of kilometers deep within to the within the earth all the way down to the core?
0: Absolutely or we can do them in space. So part of my work is looking at landslides on asteroids and that means I can't go do my field work on an asteroid. I can't go out to an asteroid and go wandering around and pick up rocks although I would absolutely love to. Instead I have to be able to get all of my data remotely either very, very remotely from telescopes, or if I'm lucky, maybe from having a little robot go into orbit around the asteroid and try and figure out as much as it can without actually getting to play with the rocks at all. They're only very recently starting some asteroid sample return missions, and those ones, we're going to get a chance to actually confirm some of these rock properties that we've been
1: guessing at. Are you involved in that mission in any way, or...?
0: I am not on that particular mission team of the OSIRIS-REx team. I am very, very excited for their results. I am involved in a project called ESPRESSO. It is a NASA-funded project, and I am on the part of the team looking at landslides specifically. So the whole concept of Project ESPRESSO is that we're sending more and more of these robots to these small comets and asteroids and moons, these little tiny, weird, wonky rocks in space with variable gravity pointing in strange directions and low to no atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And we want to be able to figure out where on these objects are both interesting and safe so that we can land our robots, take some samples, do some science, and maybe bring it home again or maybe stay in place. I'm on team where is safe, and I'm looking at landslides for it. So I'm taking what we know about landslides on Earth and how do you do hazard mapping on Earth and applying it to comets or to asteroids or to anything else to try and go, can we land our little robot without it getting squished?
1: I'm always shocked by um, the, the odd places that geosciences will take you, even uh, beyond our, our, our um, atmosphere and out into space. That's really impressive.
0: It's really fun. It's actually been one of the very frustrating parts of the pandemic for me is that I was set up to go do some zero gravity flights at the beginning of the pandemic in April, where we were going to take a sandbox, and we're going to put it into a vacuum chamber. And we're going to put the vacuum chamber on an airplane. And then we we're going to fly the airplane and these parabolas. And when you do that, you get these times where you have double the gravity. And then you go down the parabola and you get uh, reduced gravity. So I was going to have sandbox landslides in a vacuum in microgravity, and I could be able to use that to confirm how my models are working. And then we got the pandemic, and there was no flying across the country to go hang out on a zero gravity flight. So that's delayed indefinitely right now, but hopefully sometime in the not too distant future, I'll have that opportunity.
1: Were you gonna be tossed around with your sandbox too, or were you gonna be on the ground?
0: I was absolutely going to be on that plane with my sandbox, making sure that it was doing what I expected it to do.
1: I'm with... very, very jealous. And also, um, yeah, <laughs> a little
0: <laughs> Yeah, the nickname for the larger version of these flights is the Vomit Comet, uh, because that change in gravity over and over and over again can be quite upsetting for your belly. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not certain how I'd respond to it, but I was very excited to find out. So, that's my future plans right now of what I will do in the aftertimes.
1: Now, this is a really unusual field. It's a field um, I didn't know existed until, you know, I met you. Uh, How did you get into this field of science? It's not like there are uh, geophysicist Halloween costumes. (laughs)
0: It's true. So I first came to UBC and was looking at volcanoes on Mars. And it was really interesting work. I was working with corn syrup and I was putting little heaters in it and I was trying out how to make really stable hotspots for a long period of time. Um, which is really amazingly cool because it turns out the volcanoes on Mars and the volcanoes in Hawaii are geologically really, really, really similar. Like they're the same type of material, geologic material. But on Earth, we have plate tectonics that drags across the top of the hotspot. So you have that island chain. But on Mars, without plate tectonics, it just stays in one place and builds a bigger and bigger and bigger volcano until you end up with Olympus Mons. So that was really cool and really interesting. Um, but I realized I didn't, I didn't have the motivation to keep going. I got lost. I was doing my work, but I wasn't really excited about it. I didn't really understand why. So I took some time to think and to try and understand what is it that really truly motivates me? What is the thing that makes me keep wanting to do something? And I thought that motivation was curiosity. That's why most people go to grad schools because they want to learn something new and to be the first ones to learn that new thing. And I was wrong, that's not my motivation. My motivation is that I want to make things less bad. Mm -hmm. I want to make the world a little less worse. I don't even need to make it better. I just need to make it a little less grim and a little less dark. And so I almost had it figured out with doing the volcanoes. But what I actually wanted to do was work on disasters that impact people on Earth. So I started working on landslides instead. And I started working on really, really big landslides. So small landslides are like sliding block physics that you can do in high school math, where it just goes down the slope at an angle and you're done. But once landslides get really big, they start acting like a fluid instead of a solid, and they run out farther and faster than we think they should, which makes it really hard to do the hazard modeling for it. And in somewhere like British Columbia, where we have all these really young, tall mountains and a lot of rain and some earthquakes and some glaciers cut the toes off all of the slopes so they're really unstable, it's really important for us to be able to understand these super big landslides. So I did my work on that and I loved it and I found it really interesting. I had that motivation to keep going and I got my master's in it, my master's in disasters. It's a great degree. Um, And then I went, okay, now what? And I realized it's not just enough for me to do the science. I also have to be able to communicate about it and help people understand what's happening well enough for them to make better choices. So I started getting really heavily into science communication and science policy of how do we take all of this amazing research that we do and apply it to the decisions that we make. So that's what I've been spending the last many years doing. Uh, And then you go, well, how do you get from that back into space again? Well, it turns out it's the exact same science But now it's in a slightly different location, you get to do all sorts of new and cool physics to it. So I still get to feed that curiosity and have that chunk of learning something totally new that nobody has ever done before. And that it still has an impact on doing these hazard assessments, because we end up with problems like uh, the European Space Agency sent the... um, Rosetta mission to comet 67P and they dropped the little filet lander and the filet lander went bounce 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 and then landed upside down on its back next to a cliff and died. And this beautiful robot they had been sent to do this amazing research had its mission end so early because we didn't understand enough about where it was going to do a good hazard assessment. Mm -hmm. And I want to help make sure that none of our robots have that happen again. That even if it's not a life or death question, it's still like years of work and money and research and effort that if maybe we can take some of the tricks we've learned about hazard assessments here on Earth and apply them in space. We can save that up and be able to have a bit more chance of success.
1: Well, that does bring me to um, one of your amazing skills and that you are not only an amazing scientist, but you're also a fabulous uh, geoscience educator and uh, communicator. And um, I really view you as kind of a role model because uh, you do it at a level that I could never reach. And you, you constantly um, go into the lion's den and, <laughs> and engage with um, publications and people who may not be as science friendly as a, um, other publications and uh, outlets. So thanks for doing that.
0: (laughs) Well thank you. I I definitely have a lot of fun but it does make me very nervous every time I do something like decide to do an interview with a British tabloid and I'm a little bit nervous about how that's going to get put in context. Or right now I've got some documentary series out on uh, the Science Channel that I am right there listed along with UFO experts. And it's always a little bit unnerving to give up that power of how my words are going to be put together and hope that when they come out, there's still enough science context. But I take that risk because it's not about having science that is carefully organized and put together like we do in our classes with our beautiful structures and scaffolding of our ideas and our learning objectives, where we go, this is what you're going to put together. Instead it's reaching out and finding people where they are and going, okay, so this is what you like. This is what you enjoy. Here's where the science is in it. Here's how we can have really solid science about the risk of asteroid impacts and orbital interference of that inside of a romantic comedy television series. Here's how we can talk about geophysics and how do we do signal analysis inside of a television show about conspiracy theories. Here's how we can do what is the, the proper response to an earthquake and how to drop cover and hold on when doing a breaking news special on Fox. It's just because people choose to have their information from these places that I wouldn't doesn't mean they don't deserve good science. They still have that and it's still valuable to them. And so I take that risk at every time it's a little bit nerve wracking
1: and hope that it works out. No, that makes total sense. Uh, they've got the spoonful of sugar and you're the medicine. And uh, like you said, you're going to where they're at. They won't necessarily come to you and, and you can't expect that.
0: Exactly. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I learn a lot every time and I learn a lot about the sort of misconceptions people have about science, which also helps me when I'm trying to then teach in other circumstances Mm -hmm. of going, oh, okay, so when I say the word model, I think it means this, but other people are hearing this totally different thing how can I change that and work around that? There's all this jargon that I'm so used to, that's so embedded in my life that I don't even recognize other people use the words differently.
1: And that's a great skill. That's amazing. Thank you. Now, in your research, have you made any uh, fun discoveries that you'd like to share? Aside from the ones you've already mentioned?
0: I I get to learn all sorts of fun things along the edges of, of what I'm supposed to be figuring out versus what I actually figure out is is quite a big difference. Um, One of my adventures more recently has been going into uh, rock identification, which is geophysicists don't really normally do much with rock identification. I procrastinated taking my mineralogy and petrology classes as long as I possibly could. I was a very reluctant student in them. Um, Because from a geophysics perspective, We just care about what is the property of the rock. Is it magnetic or not? How dense is it? Can it conduct electricity? Which, while all very useful and important, is not really great for telling you things like what exact variety of feldspar is that? Um, But I've been playing with those physical properties in terms of, all right, where are some of the more unusual ones? Where are the properties like when you hit a rock and it glows? Or can you use your other senses, like taste, in order to identify a rock? And I found people get really excited by that, Mm. that there's a current cultural moment and trend about wanting to lick the rocks. And people get absolutely thrilled with the idea that, yeah, you totally can lick some rocks. And it's not just about identifying halite salt. You can identify other, more unusual rocks, like sylvite, which is the potassium, version of, of halide of salt that tastes sour and bitter instead, or that there's some rocks is actually dangerous to lick, like anything that smells like garlic probably has arsenic in it, which is a poison, so you definitely don't want to lick it. Uh, so that's been a really fun adventure that technically there's no reason I'm going down that path, except for it's fun, and it's interesting, and it's true, so why not? Yeah.
1: You're a lifelong student, as are some of the best academics, so um, (laughs) kudos.
0: It's an adventure. It's an absolute adventure. I've also been having fun with um, the idea that anytime you find a geologic glass, it's a sign that something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. So when we talk about rocks, rocks are made up of minerals. And minerals have a crystal structure, which means they've had enough time to be able to have all their little teeny tiny molecules form nice specific shapes. Mm -hmm. And you get like hexagons and you get prisms and you get whatever else. Um, But sometimes the mineral cools so fast it doesn't have enough time to get a structure. So it forms a glass. And the most commonly known one would be obsidian, Mm -hmm. which is when lava cools super, super fast. Opal is another version of something that doesn't have its own mineral structure. But there's also more unusual things. Like there are um, geologic glasses that form because of lightning strikes that Mm -hmm. heat things up. Or you have specific geologic glasses that form because of meteor impacts. Or to get back to my landslides, there's frictionite, which happens because a landslide is so big that when it falls and collapses and runs out, the heat of friction between the landslide and the ground melts the rocks and creates these little bits of glass. There's also human versions of geologic glasses, like we have glasses from nuclear testing and we have rocket glass from when rocket engines fire, fire into the sand when they're blasting off. That heat can melt it and create a quartz-based glass. So being able to talk about those, again, it's It's a little bit of a landslide thing. Anytime I find frictionite, I I know I found a very, very, very large landslide. Uh, But it's also just really cool and interesting to talk about. And people get hooked and fascinated by this idea that it's not just obsidian and that you can go out in the real world and find these rocks and go, okay, something big happened here. Something huge and high energy and dangerous happened here. And I can learn about it because this walk is gossiping and telling me the stories.
1: We recently had some uh, lightning strike glass donated to the museum. And going through some of the, the drawers, I found a piece that was labeled as having come from um, Los Alamos. So it was a result of the, one of the uh, nuclear blasts. But I've never seen Frictionite. Have you?
0: I do. I actually said so we can find some up near Pemberton. But... Um, But we also, I had a rock exchange. So every December, a bunch of geoscientists all trade rocks all over the world. And I managed to get a piece of frictionite sent to me from one of the world's largest landslides in the Alps. So I have a very small piece of frictionite and I love it very much.
1: (laughs) You are all about the social media. You are a social media queen. And uh, for anyone listening, you should definitely uh, pay attention to me because uh, annual mineral cup where you yeah, let minerals duke it out and uh, <laughs> geologists and geophysicists um, combat on Twitter.
0: Yeah, it was actually really, really fun. Uh, two years ago, we actually had a huge number of ice skating fans who also joined in. So it's not even just geoscientists. It's anybody who finds rocks really interesting and fun. And they start arguing about which mineral is the best. The year the ice skaters joined us, uh, ice won. Um, which it was a, a really great team up between the astronomers, the figure skaters, the geophysicists and the oceanographers and the climate change scientists. But the hard rock, science, uh, hard, hard rock geologists were kind of annoyed at us because they didn't like that a mineral that's liquid at room temperature managed to win. Um, although my objection to that is that the world's only specimen of um, ice that is solid at room temperature is in Canada. So surely we get to have some Canadian pride in that. It's a type of ice that forms under really high pressure that got stuck in a diamond and the diamond was erupted to the surface. Um, And it held, because diamonds are like a little high pressure um, sample capsule, it held it all in so tight that the ice stayed ice. Uh, And now it's in the Royal Museum of Ontario.
1: Yeah, because it, in order to melt, it would have to expand and there's no room for it to expand within the diamond.
0: Yeah, it would need some space to be able to change its structure and it just can't. It's the the diamond formed around it and now it's stuck. So it's a little inclusion of solid ice at room temperature.
1: You see, this is why I love talking to you. You know, you always have stories and uh, you just know stuff that's always entertaining that I never expect. Uh, but apparently we've got ice diamonds. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. And we're pretty sure that this particular type of ice, so there's all different varieties, like ice one, ice two, ice three, ice four, all change slightly different um, crystal structures to them. So they're all H2O, all hydrogen and oxygen, but they have slightly different shapes to the chemical structure of them. Um, And we're pretty sure this specific type of ice is really common in the solar system on all like little ice moons like Europa, or maybe out on Pluto, where they have like nitrogen glaciers moving around, that this ice might be more common under those circumstances, um, and behave more like a rock. And it's just uncommon here on Earth where we're warm and wet and squishy. So it's really cool that we've got this opportunity to actually go, okay, so this particular crystal that we're pretty sure exists that haven't been able to go out and find because it's really expensive to do anything in space. We finally found it here, thanks to diamonds helping us out that also gave us this little tiny sample of what's happening way far below our feet where we couldn't possibly drill down to get.
1: <laughs> diamonds are our geologist's best friend.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I love the idea that like we say diamonds are forever. Oh, no, not on geologic time scales. They aren't. Diamonds are just like hanging out temporarily. But once you bring them up to the surface, they're eventually going to slump down and be just carbon again. And that's um, one of the things I really had a lot of fun with wandering around inside our department. If you go around our department and ask the professors to show you their favorite rock, you will never be sad. So I went and I managed to get somebody to show me all of their little teeny tiny diamond-shaped pieces of carbon that were just diamonds that relaxed and slumped and are now, you know, graphite. (laughs) I love it.
1: What's your favorite rock or mineral?
0: Oh, I like the ones that taste good. So I really like silvite because it's sour. Um, So that's my favorite of the minerals. It's just like... Halite, just like salt is, you actually have them. They form together for the most part, um, and you've probably actually tasted silvite before without even realizing it, because anytime you get low sodium salt, that's actually 50% halite, 50% silvite. Oh. So we kind of sneak it in there, um, and it's really uh, also a really good source of potassium. So some pe- sometimes people are prescribed low sodium salt not because they need to have less salt, but because they need more potassium. Um, I love that one. I love my frictionites because anytime I can find landslide glass is just really fun and cool. Um, But I mean, I like all the rocks that have interesting properties, anything that behaves funny when you play with it. Um, I actually just did a TEDx talk about banded iron formations. So I have a banded iron formation pendant that is the geologic record of one of the most momentous changes in Earth's climate history. The banded iron formations are an extinct rock. They're a rock that formed and then the conditions to create them ended and will not happen again. And they look like black and red stripes. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason they formed is because there was a little blue-green algae called stromatolite. So we're pumping oxygen into the Earth's early atmosphere. Uh, And that oxygen reacted with the iron in the oceans. And that iron precipitated out in layers of uh, magnetic minerals like hematite and magnetite. And then when there wasn't quite enough oxygen, it precipitated out as like quartzes and other jaspers and muddy things. Mm-hmm. So you got these layers of black and red and black and red and black and red. But then the iron precipitated out of the ocean, then iron formations were done, but the oxygen kept coming and pumped into the atmosphere. And we call this a great oxygenation event because it's when we got, um, well, an oxygen atmosphere, and it led to the Cambrian Explosion of Life, and it's the reason why we have like all of these amazing organisms that have oxygen respiration, like us, mm-hmm. uh, and also all of the rocks incorporate so much oxygen into them, like all the silicates and all of the uh, rusts and all of these really cool things. i would never really thought about minerals evolving until I started going into this, but there are minerals that only exist on Earth and not elsewhere in our solar system because we have water and oxygen here everywhere. Um, But then they kept pumping, the stromatolites kept pumping so much oxygen into the atmosphere that it fundamentally changed and they poisoned themselves off and most of the stromatolites on the planet died. Uh, There's still a few of them living in like Shark Bay, Australia, and there's a kind of a handful of them in the Bahamas. But I mean, most of them are just fossils now. They're dead. Mm -hmm. And I like thinking about that because it's this huge, giant atmospheric shift. It was a massive change in the climate of the earth that changed everything from the geology to the biology, to the atmospheric science, to the oceanography, everything, everything changed. And the earth continued and life continued, but the stromatolites didn't. Mm -hmm. And here we are now facing our own massive climate change. And we have the opportunity of what we're going to do about it and how we're going to interact with it. That because of science, we have the ability to predict any possible future we want and then take the actions to create that future. And I want us to be smarter than algae. Yes. I want us to take a path that's a good path where we get to not just survive, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And that's, That's what I get every time I see a band of high information. I think of that story of the black and the red and the black and the red and the black and the red stripes are actually this frozen moment in time that was great for us, but now we're facing the current changes in time and we got to make, we got to make better choices because I don't want to end up like a extinct stromatolite.
1: I love that line. We should be smarter than LJ. Um, Yeah. One would hope that we can rise to that occasion.
0: I have low expectations, right? Like, I don't need to make the world better. I just need to make it less bad. I don't need us to be brilliant. I just need us to be smarter than LJ. Like, if we can do little tiny bits, if we can do that, then everything will be okay.
1: That's be the motto for 2020. Uh, (laughs) Make things less bad.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
1: Now I'm going to change gears a little bit, um, you are an earth scientist, in, in, or you are under that umbrella, um, and one thing I hear from our earth scientists is that when they go out into the field some really crazy stuff happens. Apparently um, the field is just an entertaining nuthouse. Uh, do you get out into the field very often and if so, um, do you have any interesting stories you'd like to share?
0: Oh, always. I'm pretty sure you cannot do fieldwork in Canada without having a favorite bear story. Uh, so my favorite bear story is the time I got into a territory war with a bear and lost. I lost so badly. Um, so I was out doing an induced polarization survey, which means that I was putting out a whole bunch of metal pegs into the ground. And then I was zapping them with electricity, with 2400 volts of electricity to see where the electrical current would go. Uh, and from that, I was hoping to find gold. So I was gold hunting.
1: Okay.
0: Um, and it's a survey that you, you do big, huge, long lines. there, like a kilometer, kilometer and a half long, where you're zapping down into the ground over and over and over again. And it takes like a day, two days to set up and run that. And then you pick everything up and you move over and you do another line. And then you pick up everything and move over and do another line. So I was doing that. Um, and it was a cold, rainy day, and a bear had decided that, well, I had cut these beautiful, nice, clear paths through through the woods that were much easier to walk through than bramble. So he was going to come walking down my cut line, which is pretty common in geophysics. You just accept that the bears are going to use your trail as their trail. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came across our injection point where we were pouring electricity into the ground, And apparently in the bear world, 2,400 volts of electricity is not something to be avoided, but instead nice and snuggly. Um, So the bear curled up on my injection point and like snuggled in to where I was trying to zap electricity into the ground, Uh, which is a problem both because, well, bears have different electrical resistance than the earth does. So suddenly my data was all flawed. Um, But also a problem because now, how do I safely go and retrieve those metal pegs and move them to somewhere else so I can continue my work? Um, So I had to try and convince the bear to please leave. So first I tried going, all right, well, what if I change the amount of electricity? And the bear went, nah, this is snuggly, this is perfect. I go, okay. So then I try, we set off bear bangers, which are like these little pens of explosives that just make a really big noise. And the bear went, nah, been around too long. I know what that is and ignored us completely. <laughs> um, so then we had to call in the helicopter to come buzz the bear and chase it away from my line. Um, so the helicopter came and made big loud noises. The bear went "Oh, fine, you're disturbing my nap and left. Great, fantastic, keep working that day do as much as we can, have to pack up for the night, go home, come back the next morning. And the bear has decided to show me what he thinks of my uh, tactics by taking a very large poop in the middle of my line on all of my equipment. So now I have to go through, (laughs) just clean all the poop off. (laughs) Thank you, bear. And then check all of the electrical readouts to make sure that he hasn't damaged anything and that everything is still consistent. Great, fine, fantastic, done. Let's do this, do my work for the day. We don't quite finish, so we have to leave things out for one more day, because the bear has disrupted our timeline. So I come back the next morning and the bear has gone, you know what, cables are delicious. And he started chewing on all of my wires. And again, this is not an uncommon problem. Everybody thinks that cables are delicious. If you are working in Canada, you are going to eventually end up with a bear who chews on your cable or a cow who chews on your cable or cats who chew on your cables. Everybody's gonna chew on your cables. So again, I have to sit there. I have to find all the tooth marks in the cables. I have to very carefully test and make sure that they didn't puncture all the way through. Or sometimes I have to go through and like splice the wires back together again. And it's these teeny tiny thin little wires, um, and I'm in like the rain on the mountains in Canada with my pliers and my electrical tape, re-splicing the wires back together again. Being like, oh freaking bear, I hate you right now. Get it all done get my, my gear finally set up and running, we get that last data point. Fantastic, great, I can finally leave this bear alone. Except for when you're doing this type of survey, you have to have a ground point, you have to have something that's really, really far away from everything else to measure relative to Because electricity, you, you have to measure relative to what does zero look like. Right. Uh, so we have to leave this one thin wire dangling out behind us as we move along. So I leave that one thin wire, and we go off and we do the rest of the survey. And it takes a few more weeks, and we think we found gold, and it was all very exciting. Um, but now we're totally done, and it's time to clean up. So we're collecting all of our wire again, we're collecting that one long thin wire. And when I get back to the line that I had all the conflicts on the bear with, this time he's left me one final present. He has killed the moose directly on top of my wire. So now I've got like antlers and fur and bones and it's this huge gory mess directly on top of my wire. And I just look at that and go, all right, clip the wire on this side, clip the wire on that side. You can have this, yeah. I'm leaving. Um, so that was the last I saw of that particular bear. Um, and as far as I know, he still has my bit of wire. Uh, and he can keep the trail. It's his now.
1: Oh, I don't envy you having to go through that. It's like chasing a cat away from a warm laptop.
0: Oh, yeah. It's just i would never really thought about 2400 volts of electricity being toasty, but uh, who am I to argue?
1: <laughs> was it flowing into the bear or what, were they just attracted by the warm post?
0: It was. I mean, the electricity is flowing through metal pegs into the ground. It's like you're creating an artificial lightning strike. It's, that's the whole point of the survey. Um, so, yeah, if you're touching the, like, I've touched those metal poles before because they're very, very low amperage. Um, so it tingles. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, send you convulsing or anything like that. If you are, then you've got some really bad problems with your setup. Um, but it is definitely, like, an uncomfortable electrical shock that, like, tightens all your muscles and everything. Um, unless you're a bear, in which case, I guess, it's a very comfortable electric shock. I. It, he he just wanted voluntary electroshock therapy? I don't know what he was doing. He just really liked it. It's Maybe it tickles? I don't know.
1: I guess that makes sense. Their they're the skin is pretty thick. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like the layers of fur and fat are pretty good insulator, I'm hope, I'm assuming, and it was definitely during fat bear season of into the autumn when they're all Hmm. bulking up in preparation for their winter hibernation. So it's like maximum insulation going on.
1: (laughs) That's what I keep telling myself as the the weather changes and um, I'm getting bigger myself. (laughs) (laughs) We're Uh stockpiling
0: for our stress responses, right?
1: Exactly. <laughs> Fattening up for a long winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, there are aspects of our work that we all love and aspects that we don't enjoy so much, like uh, Chasing Way Bears. Um, what is your favorite part of your, your work?
0: Oh, I just, i I enjoy so much of it. It's one of the nice things about doing this, mix of jobs is that I get to kind of combine things together. So the disasters work is really fun and interesting, because if I do it well, fewer people are going to get hurt and fewer people are going to die, Mm -hmm. which is like amazingly rewarding. But it also means I'm talking to people either on the worst day of their entire lives, Mm -hmm. or I'm trying to convince them to prepare for the worst day of their entire lives when they really don't want to. So it's also really exhausting work that can be emotionally very hard to do. But then I also get to do like work in science fiction or work with um, much more trivial and goofy topics. And it's like a cotton candy job where I just get to play and have fun and go, isn't this really cool and interesting and just wild? And I get to really dig into that. And again, it's really fun and it's really rewarding in a totally different way. And it's emotionally much easier to do. But, if I only did that, it's also it's also work that doesn't have that same um, fundamental impact as the disasters work. So being able to do both of them is this amazing balance for me, where I can have all these different pieces kind of come together and I can shift where my focus is depending what I need and what sort of work I'm willing to be doing, of do I want to be doing the big, serious stuff? Do I need to be doing something a little bit more goofy? how can I blend it together, what part of it am i going to work on next, and that all of it is still important to do, um, but that I don't burn out on any one aspect. So uh, that's my favorite bit, is being able to mix things up.
1: That's a great approach, and uh, I guess that explains why you're one of the happiest people I, I know, because um, <laughs> every time I'm seeing you, it's your, your happy time, I guess. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and get to play with things all of the time. And I get to try and make things a little less bad. And that's, that works for me. It's, I think it's really important to try and understand what is your motivation in life. And that motivation could be money, it could be curiosity, it could be so many things. And understanding what that is, and then accepting it. And working with that is really important. It's It was hard for me when I first realized I wasn't driven by curiosity. I really wanted to be. It was a huge part of my self-identity. And accepting that that wasn't true and that I actually had this other motivation, that my motivation was much more about public service, was critical to being able to not just be motivated, but to be happy.
1: I think that's a very... That's an admirable balance. And it's not one that um, gets promoted enough. I think we're always taught that curiosity should be enough. Or um, yeah, otherwise it's curiosity or money and there's nothing in between. But I think you found an excellent balance of you know, a manageable goal, which simply make things less bad. And that's something we can all ascribe to it, especially at a time when um, our options to improve the world are really, really limited. Uh, that mantra of make things less bad is something we can all uh, adopt.
0: It's it's really important to find out what it is that's your personal motivation. And it's also important to then figure out, okay, so what are the components and the pieces of it? So what does make things less bad look like? Well, we're facing some big, huge problems right now. We've got an existential crisis when it comes to climate change that feels overwhelming sometimes. But it turns out that even just by talking about climate change, it leads to better outcomes of people accepting and adopting science-driven decision-making and policy, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that you don't even need to talk in complicated terms or have it be persuasive arguments or anything else. You just need to like drop the phrase climate change in there as it's a thing that is happening and it's worth thinking about. And that's enough to start shifting viewpoints. Like it's not a very big thing in terms of actions, but it's a huge thing in terms of, of impact. And finding those pieces, those little places where you can shift things a little bit, and make them just that little bit less bad is big and important and interesting and hard and useful all rolled together.
1: Well, that's a that's a great accomplishment and something that's very very valuable for today's society um, now one thing that i've noticed with our field is it, it seems to be very um, accepting from my perspective uh, and welcoming but i know that my perspective isn't everyone's perspective and um, there can be ways in which people struggle unfairly which i might not recognize uh, so i'm always curious is there any way that you've had to struggle unfairly in the field of earth, ocean, and atmospheric sciences?
0: So this is always a hard question because yeah, everybody has their own, their own struggles with it. Um, I've definitely found when I'm doing my work, the, the most dangerous part of my job isn't the disasters or it isn't even the common hazards like slips, trips, and falls. It's encountering strangers in the field mm-hmm. that all of my scariest moments have involved people. Um, and often a lot of sexism with it, and I've seen a lot of racism with it. So those things are hard and they're challenging, um, and there's no easy or clean solutions to them. Um, but I've also found during my teaching that one of the um, one of the harder concepts for students has been that field work is a Big, enormous part of geoscience. So what happens if you're not physically able to do field work? Mm. What happens if you have physical limitations where you can't? What happens if it's not safe for you to because of the color of your skin, because of your sexual orientation, because of how you present yourself to the world? Um, I'm currently pregnant, which makes it very difficult for me to do things like scramble up and down rock slides, because if I fall, I have a bad center of gravity right now. I'm less coordinated. There's all sorts of hormonal changes that have made it so that my body doesn't respond the way I expect it to. And a fall could be very, very dangerous for my unborn child.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I can't do the same sort of work I normally would. Does that mean I'm not doing geoscience? Because I can't do as much field work right now. Well, what about planetary science, where all of the fieldwork is done remotely by robots? Mm-hmm. 100% of our geologic field work on Mars has been done by robots. You do not need to be physically able-bodied in order to do that work. And that's something I think we look over a lot and that we don't adapt it enough in a terrestrial viewpoint. We've got some really cool work going on in our department about making geoscience more accessible. But I think that working with physical disabilities, working with chronic pain, working with trying to be safe in environments that are not safe for whatever your identity is, is challenging and it's exhausting. And trying to understand how to do it is lonely and hard.
1: I think you, you bring up a really good point. Um, encouraging diversity and, and making the field more accessible uh, isn't an act of altruism. It actually makes the, the entire field stronger so that when things uh, like COVID come along and we can't run uh, in-person labs or run uh, you know, university level field trips out into the field, uh, we have to find ways to make it accessible to, to everyone who can't um, travel to the field because uh, of COVID restrictions. So right now, the mainstream is actually having to adapt to the conditions that used to be considered uh, minority uh, conditions.
0: Exactly. And it's also that everybody comes, science is objective, but science is done by scientists who all come at it with their own bias. The practice of science is anything but objective. Mm -hmm. Like we're all aiming to figure out these grand truths about the universe, but we're coming at it with our own perspectives and experiences and biases. Um, And that is interesting in that the more perspectives and experiences you have, then the better able you are to approach problems
1: in different ways. Mm -hmm. Now that brings me to my last question. Um, The COVID pandemic has really changed how we're doing uh, most of our work. Has it impacted your line of work or or how has it impacted your line of work?
0: Yes, actually I ended up with a nature paper because of COVID. So, we, I was part of a international collaboration that um, was led by Thomas Lecoq in Belgium, um, where we were looking at global seismic networks. Uh, so, normally, we try and put our seismometers in really isolated, quiet places, so we can be as far away from noisy, interfering people as possible, and just listen to earthquakes, and use that... To be able to map out what the inside of the earth looks like and how plate tectonics are moving and what exactly is going on in, in the interior of the earth based on how those vibrations travel. But it's really hard to get far away from people. <laughs> we're noisy. Um, so we're always having to filter out this noise of traffic and trucks and people stomping their feet and all of these human generated noises until we had COVID and the entire planet went into lockdown And suddenly things got very, very quiet. And we picked it up on our seismic networks where we could see that there's less air traffic coming in and out of the Caribbean islands and that there's less truck traffic going through the streets of London. Um, That with the seismic station in Vancouver that's down at Canada Place, we saw this sudden quieting happening we no longer had cruise ships coming in, we didn't have the downtown traffic, the construction slowed down, we didn't have pedestrians happening, and suddenly we're able to just have a minute to breathe, <laughs> have this calm in our seismic stations, um, and also be able to almost quantify what is the impact of people staying home?
1: Mm-hmm. What is
0: the impact of people just chilling out for a bit? Um, We're still going through a lot of that data, trying to to find more things. We did the the very first step, which is, so we hypothesize when everyone stays home, it'll suddenly be very quiet on our seismic stations. And we saw that was true. And then we correlated it with things like flight plans and um, audio recordings of traffic noises getting quieter and all of this other stuff to confirm that, yeah, that is actually what happened. The cause and effect, these two things are linked together. And now it's time to go through all of it and go, all right, so can we see smaller earthquakes than normal? Um, Can we uh, identify other things happening that we couldn't usually see in this global quieting? And maybe in the future, once there's more noise in the aftertimes again, will we be able to better filter out that human generated noise uh, now that we know what it looks like with a before after? Like now we know what that noise actually looks like. Can we filter it out more easily? and be able to get just the geologic data we were looking for in the first place.
1: That's amazing. You can actually hear the difference of human activity deep within Earth.
0: <laughs> yes, it's like, it's, it's right there in all of our data. And the, we're not the only field that did it. There's been, even in British Columbia, there's been a couple of very cool studies. There's another group of scientists who managed to do, they do audio recordings in the oceans. Um, and they were able to see the quieting of ships meant they were better able to hear the whales. Wow. So there's been a lot of things that's been an accidental global science experiment by just having a brief moment of quiet to be able to go out and look and listen.
1: And I guess that shows how noisy we really are. And maybe in the future, we'll uh, work toward being a a little less noisy, generating less noise pollution.
0: (laughs) That'd be nice. That'd be very nice just not have things, not just go back to what they used to be, but to go back better.
1: Exactly. Well, Mika, those are all the formal questions I have. Um, Did you have anything you wanted to add before I let you go?
0: Oh, I mean, it's just, it's an interesting thing to work with the earth because it's one of the few sciences where where you physically are makes so much difference that here in British Columbia, we have this active tectonic zone and brand new baby rocks. But if you do something like a travel abroad, to Australia and do their field camps, you find entirely different situations where instead of identifying volcanoes by looking for obsidians or granites, you go looking for the extremely weathered clays and see if you can stick your finger in and have it go down. So it's really, it's a great field for being able to have it change depending where you are, what sort of things you're going to learn. And it's a great field for being able to have so many different applications of whatever your particular motivation and your particular type of curiosity, there's some way to apply it to look at things to do that aspect. And it's all about just trying to figure out how to put those pieces together. And it might not be the same path as everyone else. And that's fine, because there's so much space in this. There's so many different ways to do it. So go forth, figure out what, what motivates you, figure out where your curiosity is. If the job doesn't exist, go ahead and create it. Nobody's going to stop you.
1: That's a fabulous philosophy. Um, I, I knew you'd, yeah, give a great because you're always a pleasure to talk to. And uh, you're always dripping pearls of wisdom into my ear. And uh, I thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, well, take care.
0: All right, have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca, learn, quarantine conversations.